This is a bittersweet day. Um, we began this journey in Revelation, this exegetical study of the book, more than 10 years ago in January of 2013. Today is message number 181 in this study. All of these are available online at our website, fpgm.org, and on Apple Podcasts, Exegetical Studies and Revelation. Uh, we've come to the end. We've come to the end of a very long journey. And Lord willing, this will be the last of this study. So my prayer is that somewhere along the line, this past 10 years, uh, there are people in here who weren't even born then, um, that you were blessed and that you were encouraged to dive into God's Word, that you found hope that can't be found in present circumstances, but can be found in what awaits the churches of the living God that Jesus Christ promised to build. And he said the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Revelation was given by God to Jesus Christ, delivered unto his servant John to be shared with the churches. They are for us. This message is for us. And it's a message of hope. You know, one of the epitomes, in my view, of American pride and American arrogance is this attitude or idea that we've all had at some point that something we're facing or something we are seeing in our society is somehow worse than has ever been in American history. This is the worst attack on democracy in American history. This is the worst. Trump is the greatest president in American history. Everything is the greatest or the worst in American history. And it just reflects an epitome of arrogance that we somehow, whether we intend to or not, as Americans, and even in the church, think that we are better off than other folks in history, that we know better than any American in history, that somehow what we face is either better or worse than what others have faced in history. And what that attitude does is it diverts away from us the responsibilities we have for what we're living in today. Rest assured, the things that we see in America today January 6th, the show trials in Washington, the tyranny in Washington, it's not the worst that's ever been, not even close. In fact, I would argue that what we're seeing in Washington today has been here before, and it's been buried, and we've gotten fat spiritually, living at ease in days of unrighteousness, and instead of learning from history, we were distracted when history came along to repeat itself. I would argue that these show trials in Washington today aren't the biggest show trials that have ever happened in Washington in American history. I would argue that there have been things even worse. False charges even worse. Innocent people punished even worse than January 6th. And if we had been sober as Christians, if we had been vigilant 
because our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion prowling around seeing whom he could devour. If we'd been less focused on our sports teams, less trusting in Republicans, less naive about morality, and always thinking there was this moral majority, maybe we could see it coming. But we've all been blind. We've all been lukewarm. We've all been just like the last of the seven churches that John addresses here. And that's why looking and studying this book's been important, hopefully to open our eyes. Not to blame someone else. Not to talk about how someone else has failed to interpret it properly or failed to teach it. But for us, has this study in some ways opened our eyes to where we don't see things with the naivete that we once did. And I'm guilty as the next man. There was a trial in Washington, D.C. in 1865. A man by the name of Henry Wirtz, a captain in the Confederate Army, was charged with war crimes. And he was hung from the Capitol, in the Capitol Prison in D.C. on November 10th, 1865. You see, Henry Weirtz was the commanding officer at the Andersonville Prison Camp in Andersonville, Georgia. It was a prison camp where the Confederate Army housed Union prisoners of war. And he was charged with war crimes against Union prisoners simply because there had been a lot of deaths in that camp. And the attitude was that all oh, these, pe- these poor men were persecuted and treated terribly when even the folks in prison there denied that those things had happened. Supplies had been cut off by the Yankee blockade. Foodstuffs and, and, and materials that were needed to care for those prisoners weren't even able to come, come into Andersonville. And even Confederate soldiers were dying because of disease and the lack of supplies. But the government in Washington saw this as an opportunity to put fear in the hearts of all Americans at the end of the Civil War and to make sure people understand that your allegiance is to the United States government and don't you dare speak against it. President Lincoln was assassinated April 14, 1865. Only five days after the Lee surrendered Appomattox, Lincoln was assassinated. There was a show trial to convict his assassins. And there was an effort. Wicked, wicked men in Washington. I'd say that some of these devils in Washington today, the, the Schumers, the Pelosi's, the McConnell's, they're just fleas and gnats compared to some of those vile senators from northern states that were in the Congress following the Civil War. But they saw an opportunity to use Lincoln's assassination to go after the former president of the Confederate States of America and to somehow pin it upon him so they could hang him and hang him publicly and strike fear into the hearts of all Southerners. They found an opportunity in this Henry Weirtz with the deplorable conditions at Andersonville that had been created by the Yankee armies that pillaged and burned and raped and stole in the South. This man hadn't done anything. 
He had a wife and a child. He was arrested in prison and he was found, he was sentenced to death by a show trial. And the U.S. prosecutors came to him in prison and said, look, this is all you have to do. We know that these charges, you know, we, we understand that they're not true. But if you'll do one thing for us, we will guarantee you that these charges will be dropped and that you will be given your life back. You will save your life. All we want you to do is sign this paper here and say that and swear to the fact that Jefferson Davis had something to do with Lincoln's assassination. If you'll just say that and sign this paper, we'll free you tomorrow. Well, this man was just an average guy, not well known. He'd never even met President Jefferson Davis, didn't know the man, never even had a conversation with him. And just to kind of contrast with you the difference between honor today and honor in another day and time, he told those prosecutors, no, I don't know the man, I've never met the man, and my life isn't more important than my honor. I will not sign a paper and lie against a fellow countryman that I've never met. He chose to die because he believed truth was more important. This is just an average guy who's gone down in history as a war criminal. And it's a vile, vile lie. And it was a kangaroo trial where an innocent man was put to death in a political attempt to go after people who weren't guilty of treason. You know, I laugh when I hear these idiots on television talking about January 6th is the worst attack on democracy since the Civil War. If you believe the Civil War was an attack on democracy, you are woefully and willfully ignorant of history. Woefully and willfully ignorant of history. You're woefully and willfully ignorant of how the Lincoln administration suspended basic constitutional rights, arrested people without charges, tore down newspaper officers, threw legislatures into prison without charges. You're woefully and willfully ignorant of those things. And when a society is ignorant of history, it tends to think itself to be better or worse off than anyone else that has come before. The Bible says there's no new thing under the sun. Human nature doesn't change. Therefore, human history doesn't change. And these things do a much better job of telling the future than a news media or some false prophet. But I find it interesting that, you know, they never could pin anything on Jefferson Davis. He stayed in prison until May of 1867, and he wanted, he pled for a trial. He wanted to be tried for treason. He wanted a trial. He wanted a jury to find him guilty. But the U.S. government knew that based upon the Constitution, based upon the rights of the states that were given in the con- or that were acknowledged in the Constitution, that they could never get a guilty verdict. And so one day in May 8 of 1867, they just came to his cell, opened the door, and said, You're free to go. Let him go. He ended up moving to Canada to try to restore his health and then died in 1889. 
Davis wrote a two-volume work in 1881 called The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government. Um, the first volume is about 700 pages. The second volume is 900. It's very interesting. It's very interesting to see that things we've been taught are so clear and simple indeed or not. We've been lied to in this nation a lot. We've been lied to a lot. We've, our wealth and our ease has caused us to become distracted and lazy. And this government has, been, has, has run up a bill with God. The people of this country have run up a bill with God. And the Bible guaranteed this nation's destruction long before the Declaration of Independence. God told Israel that one day, God would make a, that he would make a full end of all the Gentile nations where the seed of Israel had been scattered. But he would not make a full end of the people of Israel. Well, the seed of Israel has been scattered into this country. And so our death as a nation has been guaranteed long ago. But we need to kind of get out of this mindset that we've got it worse. Even the evil we see in America today pales into comparison. Did you know that after the Civil War, if you were from the South, you were not allowed to vote unless you swore an oath of allegiance to the United States government as supreme. Now that's wicked as hell in my opinion. Jesus Christ told his followers not to swear. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth. Let your yea be yea and your nay be yea. But if you wanted to vote in the South after the Civil War, you had to swear an oath of allegiance. That's evil. Do we got a wicked government going around today requiring that of us? No. So people have had it worse off than we have. Folks have had it better off than we have. iPhones aren't the measure of intelligence, wisdom, and technological advancement. The world is drawn on. Sin has drawn on. Kingdoms have risen and fallen. Evil has done its work. Satan prowls. And the church has become lukewarm. You see, even in those days of evil, there was enough honor where a man would choose truth over his own life, knowing he was leading, leaving a wife and a child behind. Knowing. Wouldn't dare sign a paper that implicated a man he'd never met before. Wouldn't dare do it. And preachers today would sign stuff like that just to be able to grow their church congregation. My, how far we've fallen. How dare we judge people of another era in history as if we're better than them. Lincoln was assassinated on April 14th. And a little known fact, the last subject he was talking about before the bullet entered his brain in the theater there was the land of Israel. He was telling a man that seated beside him how, how much he wanted to one day travel to the Holy Land, that he really, really wanted to walk the pathways where the Savior walked and to see the land for himself. That's the last thing he said. When that bullet entered his brain. That's interesting. That's interesting. There are people in America today, some in Christian churches, that would say that that land doesn't belong to the Jew. That they have no business being there. Lincoln's funeral was in the 
East Room of the White House. I find this an interesting irony of history. East Room of the White House, his funeral, there were 600 people that, were, that attended that funeral, invited guests. Jefferson Davis's funeral, December 6th, I think it was not the 6th is when he died, but the funeral a few days later was in New Orleans, Louisiana, and it was attended by 200,000 mourners. It was one of the largest histories, I mean, one of the largest funerals in the history of the entire United States. Now, isn't that ironic? Interesting. Now, Lincoln's body did make a journey from Washington all the way to Springfield, Illinois, to be buried there, and there were people that came out along the pathways and through the town, so a lot of folks did come out. But I find it interesting that a man who's so hated today as a treasonous traitor had a funeral attended by, by more people than almost any other funeral in American history. Isn't that crazy? We are so blind today. We are so uh, uh, deceived in what reality is and what truth is and what good is and what evil is. It behooves us to consider this book here, this apocalypse, this end. Because if Christ doesn't come to deliver us, we will all destroy ourselves. We'll destroy ourselves. Christ's return is as much a deliverance for the earth itself as it is for his people. Men are wicked. The church is lukewarm. And my desire is that whatever this study has been for you, that somewhere, somehow it's opened some eyes to where we're no longer naive about our country. We're no longer naive about a moral majority. We're no longer naive about these great strategies that are supposed to build up the church. We're no longer naive about the true nature of revival. It wouldn't be a sermon in this study if it didn't have a long introduction. I had to bless you with that today. It's the last time you'll have to endure it. But turn with me this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 46. Deuteronomy 32, we have the song of Moses. And then we have warning given to the children of Israel at the end of Moses' life. In verse 46 of chapter 32, well, if you go back to verse 44, it says, Moses came and spake all the words of this song in the ears of the people, he and Hosea, or Joshua, the son of Nun. And Moses made an end of speaking all these words to Israel. And then verse 46, and he said to them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do. All the words of this law. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. And through this thing ye shall prolong your days in the land, whether you go over Jordan to possess it, now, that was the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant. 
It was conditional covenant. Israel or any given generation of Israel would prolong its days in the land if it kept the covenant. If it refused to keep it, God would judge the land and they would be scattered from the land. It has nothing to do with His unconditional promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's going to build a nation. God's going to restore a nation. He's going to raise up Israel. And one day they will be converted. I was reading this week in one of Spurgeon's sermons on Revelation how he talked about the day of the future conversion of the nation of Israel. But if they turned from God, God would shorten their days in the land. Didn't mean He wouldn't bring them back, wouldn't restore it. But the essence of this is that they were to set God's words in their hearts. Not God's word. God's words. Turn to Psalm 12. Did you know that the book of Deuteronomy itself in Hebrew is called Devarim? And it goes back to the very first chapter, first verse. These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel. Words, Devarim. The title of that book is Words. It's not the Word of God. It's the words of God. And sometimes we get the two confused. We speak as if the Word of God is important, some esoteric reality out there, or this neo-orthodoxy that the Word of God is this mystical thing, and we therefore downplay the words of God that are printed on the page, as if some esoteric word is more important than the very words themselves. Deuteronomy says, is the title is words in Hebrew. Turn to Psalm 12, 6 and 7. You'll understand where I'm going with this shortly. We are told that the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. God says He'll keep His words and He'll preserve His words. Not some esoteric word reality, but the very words themselves. Turn to the book of Jude. Jude verse 17. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude exhorts the early Christians to remember the very words that the apostles spoke. Not their sermons, not their general message, not some theme of their preaching, but the words they spoke. And then of course we all know from the recent preaching on the Bible's last warning that we are to be very careful not to add to the words of the prophecy of this book nor to subtract from the words of the prophecy of this book. You see, God's words are important, not just His Word. We talk about the Word of God and yet we lightly esteem the words. We act as if a little word isn't important. Or one particular verse isn't important. And we camp out in certain places in the Scriptures to further our own theological presuppositions. But the Bible says to give heed to the words. And if the words of God are important, every one of them so important that we're to remember them, that God 
kept them and preserved them and that like Israel, we should set our hearts to all of them. If the words of God are important, then how can we overlook or lightly esteem the very last word of the Bible? How can we? How can we pass it over and not meditate on it a bit? Last week we talked about the last verse of the Bible. Or the last two weeks we looked at the last blessing. And then we looked at different types of blessings in the Bible. It was a springboard into that. Today I just want to end this study by looking for a few moments at the last word of the Bible. Because Jesus said that not a single jot, not a single tittle would pass from the law. The jot is the Hebrew letter yod, the smallest letter in the alphabet. A tittle is a piece of a letter that distinguishes it from another letter. For example, the bottom arm on an E, if you take it away, it becomes an F. That bar on the bottom or that horizontal line is a tittle. It's a part of a letter. So Jesus said even the letters and the parts of the letters are important. What's the very last word of the Bible? Amen. It's the last word of the New Testament, the last word of Revelation, the last word of the Bible, the Bible's very last amen. Now we've talked about this word a bit. It's a particle or an interjection that comes from Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word, amen. The Hebrew word is transliterated into Greek in the New Testament. Amen. That in itself is transliterated into English. Amen. Amen can be the beginning of a discourse. We see this in the Greek New Testament. Sometimes amen is at the beginning of a discourse. Sometimes it's at the end. If it's at the beginning, you'll see it translated verily or truly. In the Old Testament, it's the end of a discourse. You won't find it at the beginning of a discourse in the Old Testament. You'll find it at the end. It's at the end of a discourse in the New Testament too, but in the New Testament, sometimes you see it at the beginning of Jesus' words and His proclamations. The Bible itself amazes me, particularly this King James Bible. It's got a built-in dictionary. The Bible actually defines the word amen, and I've defined it for you, but let's let the Bible do it. Turn to Jeremiah 11. The word amen appears 30 times in the Old Testament. 27 times it's translated amen. One time here it's translated in such a way that it gives us the definition of the word. Jeremiah 11, 1 through 5, the prophet receives the word of the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant and speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant. The very words themselves which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. So he's hearkening back to this passage in Deuteronomy. Obey my voice and do them according to all which I command you. So shall ye be my people and I will be your God, that I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. 
as it is this day. This is the message God told Jeremiah to preach. I want you to go preach this to the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. God told a street preacher to go preach in the public concourse and he gave him the message to preach. And look at Jeremiah's response. Then answered I and said, so be it, O Lord. That phrase, so be it, in English, in Hebrew, is amen. Jeremiah said, amen, Yehovah. Amen, God. So, amen means so be it. That's the definition. It's right there. In Hebrew, in that passage, it's the word amen. There's two other times that the word appears in Hebrew in the Old Testament, but it's translated truth. And they're both found in Isaiah 65, 16. This sheds a little more light on the word. Isaiah 65, 16. It says, this is talking about prophecies concerning Christ's second coming in the millennial kingdom and God's regathering of the nation of Israel. God says, a day's coming that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from mine eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. There's a day coming when men will bless themselves in the God of truth. They will swear by the God of truth and there will be peace. Now in Hebrew, that name God of truth is Bu'elohim. Amen. It translates God, amen. God of truth, God, amen. God is the amen. He's the God of truth. I find that interesting because... That passage there is alluded to by Jesus Christ himself. Where? In the book of Revelation. In the letter to the last of the seven churches, to the church at Laodicea, Jesus Christ refers to himself as the Amen. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, let me just go there. I used to have this all memorized. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Some say that Jesus Christ never claimed to be God. Well, absolutely He did right here. By calling Himself the Amen, He's calling Himself the God of truth. Just as it was written there in Hebrew in Isaiah 65 about the very things that are revealed to us here in Revelation. The word amen is tied to God and cannot be divorced from Him. It's tied to God. It's a serious word. Any word that's tied to God is serious. Whether it's His name or His character, it's serious. So twice it's translated truth. Elohim, amen. God is the amen. Jesus Christ is the amen. In the New Testament, you'll find amen in Greek, 
152 times. So you're talking about five times more in the New Testament than the Old Testament. You have a Hebrew word. Now, 101 of those times, it's the beginning of a discourse. And almost all of these are in the preaching of Jesus. It's in the Gospels. So you'll, you'll have it translated verily or truly. Jesus' preaching contained a lot of amens. He used that word a lot. And it was a serious word. Let me give you some examples just in the Gospel of John. Turn to John chapter 3 verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily. In Greek, it's amen, amen. I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus said, amen and amen, you must be born again. That word verily is amen. John 6, 47. You can't get to God except through Christ. You can't get to heaven unless you've been born again. John 6, 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me has everlasting life. Amen, amen, Christ said. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. It's a present declaration. Not something will have everlasting life, but those who believe on Christ have it now. That's why Jesus said, Don't fear them that can kill your body. Can't touch your soul. Those that believe on Christ have everlasting life now. Death is a passage. The sting is gone. Amen, amen, Christ said. John 8, 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, Amen, amen, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. You know, the folks that say Jesus never claimed to be God are very ignorant, woefully and willfully ignorant of Jesus' words right here. What did God tell Moses His name was? I am. Jesus used the name of God, the God of Israel, for Himself. And the proof is, verse 59, then they took up stones to cast at Him. They tried to stone Him for blasphemy. Jesus said, Amen, Amen, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I am God. Amen. John 10, 7. Then Jesus said unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Amen, Amen, I am the door. You don't come into the sheepfold except through Christ, my friends. He's the only way to God. He's the only door for the sheep. Those that come in another way, Christ said, are thieves and robbers. He is the door to the sheep. Come through Him. Amen and amen. So guys, when you see verily, verily in the New Testament, in the Gospels, just know that's the word amen. It was a word, a single word that Jesus probably used more than any other word. He used it a lot. It's a serious word, not a flippant word. 
101 times it's translated verily in the New Testament. 51 times it's the end of a discourse and it's translated amen. Or as defined in Jeremiah, so be it. All four Gospels end with the word amen. All of Paul's epistles end with the word amen. All New Testament books end with amen except three. Does anybody know which ones they are? There are only three books in the New Testament that do not have amen as its final word. Acts, James, and 3 John. Why do you suppose that is? I've thought about that this week. I've wondered about it. You know, when you read the book of Acts, Acts is the opening act of the church age. It shows us how the earliest Christians understood and carried out Jesus' great commission. It's a beginning. It's a beginning act of the church Jesus Christ said He would build. And it's the church that goes all the way into the end. The rapture. Why is there no amen? Acts is an open-ended book. The work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in the gospel going throughout the world continued beyond Acts chapter 28. There's no amen. There's no amen. The church age doesn't close until Laodicea. The amen... For the book of Acts is found in Revelation 3.14 and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen. There's your Amen from the book of Acts. James, you know, James is an interesting book and a lot of times those that teach from James fail to consider its opening verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. James is writing, I believe this book was written very early in the New Testament era, but James is writing to the Jewish diaspora. That means those that were scattered, living outside of Israel. The diaspora began with the carrying away to Babylon. And there's a lot of Jews that never came back to the land. James is writing to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. That is his primary audience. Now we would do well to remember that when we read James. We can't divorce his words from his original audience. Now does that mean the book of James doesn't apply to us? Absolutely not. If it didn't apply to us, it wouldn't be in the Bible. If it wasn't useful to the saints, it wouldn't be in the Bible. But be careful that you do not deny the audience there. But James is to the Jewish diaspora. And why then is there no amen? Well, I think the answer to that is in Romans chapter 11 verse 5. We're given the answer. Even so, at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul is talking about the Jewish remnant. If you go over to Jeremiah 30, 11, God says, I'm going to make an end of all the nations where I've scattered you. But I'm not going to make a full end of you, Israel. You see, from the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the end of time, there will always be a Jewish remnant. There will always be one. James is written to the Jewish remnant. 
And it has no amen because the US, Jewish remnant never ceases to be. That's just my thoughts on the matter. Third John. Third John has no amen. Well, who is Third John written to? It is written to elect believers in an apostate church. It's written to Gaius and references made to Demetrius. To faithful believers in an apostate church run by a charlatan named Diotrephes. Second John is written to the elect churches, the remnant churches. Third John is, to, uh, is, is addressing a couple of faithful believers in an apostate church. And there is no amen. Well, why? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Just as there is always and always will be a remnant of Israel, there is and always will be a faithful remnant body of Christ. There is no end. Those things transcend space and time into the coming ages. There's no amen. There's no end to it. So I, I find it interesting those three books deal with works of God that, are, that don't end. And therefore there is no amen. But every other book in the New Testament has an amen at the end. Amen can be found nine times in Revelation. Nine times. Twice in the things which thou hast seen, chapter 1, or three times actually. We've got it once there in the message to the church at Laodicea. We've got it there in Revelation chapter 5. When the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll, we see it there in Revelation 7, <clears throat> rejoicing over the last great awakening of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses and their Gentile converts. We see it in chapter 19, verse 4, in relation to the judgment of the great whore in the world system. These are all part of the things which shall be hereafter that John was told to write. Then, of course, we've seen it in chapter 22, verse 20, the last prayer of the Bible, and then here, the very last word of the Bible, the epilogue. It's, an amen, it's a word that's all over the New Testament. And we use it flippantly, as if it's not serious, as if it's some kind of a greeting. It's not. It's a serious word. How do I know that? Well, let's go back to the law of the first mention. If we're going to look at the Bible's last amen, we need to look at its first amen. The very first time this word appears in the Bible's not Genesis, not Exodus, not Leviticus. It's in the book of Numbers. And it's involving a subject that you would not expect. Turn to Numbers 5. This is the first time we see this word in the Bible. And I believe, according to the sound hermeneutical principle of the law of the first mention, I believe it sets the tone. It shows us how serious a word this is. Now, I'm not going to read Numbers chapter 5. This, this subject begins at verse 11. It's called the offering of jealousy. And this is basically how the people or the priest are to deal with a spirit of jealousy that comes upon a husband who suspects that his wife has committed adultery. Now, he doesn't know. He doesn't have any proof. But she, he, the spouse suspects that there is an affair. And he's jealous and he's angry. 
And so there's a way to determine whether or not she's guilty. And it's what I would call a primitive lie detector test. And so we have a special offering that is to be brought. If there's an accusation of unfaithfulness and adultery, then the, the wife is to come before the priest with an offering of barley. And then there's an earthen vessel in which is to be put the holy water from the laver in the tabernacle or later in the temple. And in that earthen vessel of water, the priests are to take dust or dirt from the floor of the tabernacle. Now keep in mind, this is dirt that barefooted priests have been walking on all the time. So dirt and dust from the floor, they're to take and put in that earthen bottle. And then this accused is to come before the Lord and offer up this barley offering. And she's told to drink of this bitter water. And if that bitter water, after she takes that bitter water, if nothing happens and she feels fine, then she's innocent. But if her belly begins to swell and she gets sick and her thigh begins to rot, then she's indeed guilty. And then we know whether she committed adultery or not. And therefore, the man is uh, guiltless concerning his jealousy and the woman shall bear her iniquity. So what we have here is this primitive lie detector test for determining whether someone had been unfaithful. And it obviously, stress and guilt causes physical reactions and it was an easy way to determine. It was like a primitive lie detector. God's not stupid. He's not primitive. He knows how everything works. We think because we can give it scientific names nowadays, we're somehow smarter than folks that lived before. And yet they built buildings that have stood for over a thousand years without modern machinery. Who's more smart? Anyway, um, in verse 22, we see the first use of the water, I mean of the, of the word amen. And so she's... Uh, let's go back to verse 19 just to kind of set the exact tone here. And the priest shall charge her by an oath. This is the woman that is suspected of adultery, the wife. And say unto the woman, If no man have lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside to uncleanness with another, instead of thy husband, be thou free from this bitter water that causeth the curse. But if thou hast gone aside to another instead of thy husband, and if thou be defiled... And some man have lain with thee beside thine husband. Then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing. And the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people. When the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell. And this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. So in other words, you're going to drink this water and if you're not guilty, it won't affect you. Amen. One amen. But if you are guilty, it's going to make you sick. Amen as well. And so the woman was instructed to reply with amen to each of the outcomes. In other words, affirming this to be true. Now someone who's smart, if they're guilty, wouldn't dare say such a thing. They confess their sin. And so, 
One amen for each outcome in this situation. And then the bitter water would be drunk and they'd know whether or not she was guilty or not. That's serious business if you say amen and then your belly starts to swell knowing you're guilty. These are very serious affirmations here in Numbers 5, 22. Very serious amens. Very dangerous if the person was actually guilty. You see, amen uttered flippantly can actually speak our own judgment. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, we have 12 amens. At the end of every single curse from Mount Ebal is an amen. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 27, 26, and look what uh, Israel said amen to. They said amen to a lot of stuff and ended up eating those words. Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed be he that confirmeth not to all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say amen. That was a serious affirmation, a serious amen, if you didn't intend to keep it. And we know that Israel did not intend to keep it. She spoke her own judgment right here. Turn to Joshua 24. I know I'm all over the Scriptures today. Joshua 24, 15 and 16. Joshua, ahead of his death, addresses the children of Israel who at that point had still not been completely obedient to drive out the inhabitants of the land. They still had not completely put away the false gods they brought out of Egypt. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. If you go over to verses 19 and following, and Joshua said unto the people, after they said this, Joshua said, you cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God, He is a jealous God, He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then He will turn and do you hurt and consume you after they have done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, no, or nay, we will serve the Lord. He's warning them. This is serious. Don't just flippantly say that. This is serious. And then you go down to verse 23. Now therefore, Joshua said, put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you. They still had strange gods among them when they were sitting there saying, we ain't going to... Notice what they never said. They never said we're not going to put... A... They never said we're going to put away our false gods. They said we will not forsake the Lord. Put away your false gods which are among you and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve and His voice will we obey. They didn't say, Okay, we'll put away our strange gods. Go in the book of Judges, them strange gods are still around. These are serious things to say. Israel spoke its own judgment, not just on Mount Ebal with Moses where they said amen, but also here with Joshua. Israel really spoke its own judgment in the New Testament twice. 
And if you want an explanation as to why everything that has happened to the people of Israel the last 2,000 years has happened, you've got the answer right there. Doesn't justify it. Doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't change the fact that God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's going to keep. But everything that's happened from the pogroms to the Nazi Germany, the why is right there in the Bible in a book that they refuse to read and that they refuse to accept. Turn to Matthew chapter 27, verse 25. Talk about speaking your own judgment. Matthew 27, 25. I'll go to verse 24. Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it, Jesus. And look at the response of the people. Who were the people? The Jews gathered that day. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. That's probably one of the stupidest things anybody in the history of the world ever said. Because they got exactly what they said. Over in the Old Testament, they should have known that when innocent blood is shed in a city or in the land of Israel, the land cannot be cleansed until that blood is avenged. Until that blood is atoned for. The land of Israel cannot be cleansed until the people of Israel open their eyes and repent and acknowledge that they shed innocent blood when they called for Christ's death. Speak in your own judgment. Now, the Jews didn't kill Christ. I remember hiking in South America with our team Yeshua on the Waiwash circuit in the Andes looking for Israelis. And on the, one of the last days, we had climbed to the top of a pass and we had two pen drives left. We, we had the scriptures in Hebrew on pen drives, the New Testament, and we were giving them to Israeli backpackers and we really wanted to give them out. And um, I don't believe that was the summer Eric was there. This was in 2017. Bibi was only about 12 or 13. But as we neared the pass, there was a whole group that came over the top and it was all Israelis and we were able to give out the last of our material. We were excited about it. And I began to speak with their guide, a Peruvian, for a few minutes. And I asked him if all of his group was from Israel. And he said yes. And then he proceeded to tell me in Spanish that the Israelis are devils. They're devil people. I hate them. They killed Christ. That's what this guy said to me. I rebuked him. I said, friend, you need to be very careful about saying such things like this because the Bible says no one killed Christ. Jesus laid his life down. No man takes my life from me, Jesus said. I lay it down for the sheep. Jesus laid his life down. And the Gentiles were just as much a part of that. And God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he intends to fulfill one day regarding the Jewish people. But no such promises are for the Gentile nations of the world that have turned their back on God. You need to repent for saying something like that. We need to quit blaming everybody else for where we're wrong. What think ye of Christ? And he's just kind of like, whoa, you know, I just told him straight up. I didn't like that. I hate hearing that. I hate hearing pious, religious, hypocrites refer to Jewish people as Christ killers. 
What Christ are they talking about? The Christ I serve, the Jewish Messiah, wept over Jerusalem and then He laid His life down and then He rose up from the grave and the early church was all Jews. And if it hadn't been for them, we'd have never heard the truth. Praise God. But those were indeed stupid words that were spoken there by the people. John 19, 15 is some more stupid words. And these have haunted the nation of Israel since for 2,000 years. John 19, verse 15. And it was the preparation of the Passover, verse 14, at about the sixth hour, and He saith unto the Jews, Behold your King. This is Pilate. But they cried out, Away with Him, away with Him, crucify Him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. They've eaten those words for 2,000 years. They want to talk about, you know, you want to consider all the terrible Roman Catholic persecution against Jewish folks. Terrible. And their answer for it. But the priest, the chief priests and religious leaders of the day said, we have no king but Caesar. And Caesar has indeed ruled over her ever since. Rome still has its foot in Jerusalem and still wants to control it. Has been a barrier to Israel for going back to the night to the Balfour Declaration of being able to consider Jerusalem its capital. They have eaten those words, guys. It's serious to say flippant things. It's a serious thing. Many of us probably have spoken our own judgment. I know I have. We need to be very careful. And amen is one of those words that if you're going to say it, you better believe it because you'll eat it. The first use of the word amen in the Bible is very serious. And therefore, every subsequent usage is serious. We should consider it. Now, for those who... Use it flippantly, amen is a dangerous word. Very dangerous. But, turn to 2 Corinthians 1. Look what this tells us about this word. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Paul says to the church at Corinth, but as God is true... Remember, amen is used with Elohim in the Old Testament, the God, is, God of truth. As God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. In other words, we weren't going back and forth like a pendulum on a, on a grandfather clock. It wasn't yes and no and maybe. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus, Silvanus is Silas, and Timotheus or Timothy, was not yea and nay, but, was, but in Him was yea. For all the promises of God in Him, in Christ, are yea and in Him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Paul wasn't out there preaching to them in the hypothetical back and forth of the rabbis and the Talmuds. What he proclaimed was yea, and all the promises of God in Christ, which are amen. Just as amen pronounced flippantly is dangerous, 
amen affirmed in sincerity to God's truth is hope and it's salvation. It's a way we express our hope in Christ and His promises. Romans 8, 24 and 25 For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for what we see not, then we do with patience wait for it. We, our salvation, we are saved by hope. Hope in what we can't see. Remember Jesus told Thomas, Blessed are you, you have seen and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's hope. The essence of our faith is hope. Trust in the promises of God. And we affirm that with the word amen. Amen is a verbal affirmation of our hope. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. If Christ is our hope, then we ought to use amen as regularly as he did, as an affirmation of that hope. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ coming for his church is the blessed hope. And Revelation is all about Christ coming. How fitting for it to end with the word Amen. An unveiling of the blessed hope ends with amen. An affirmation of that hope. So my question here today in light of the seriousness of amen and how it appears in the Scriptures, this last word of the Bible, can we truly say amen to all that we've studied here in Revelation these past ten years? Can we say it? Don't say it flippantly. That's dangerous. Can you say it in... Faith and insincerity. Can we truly say amen to the last verse of the Bible here? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Can we truly say amen? Do we really and truly affirm that salvation is by grace through faith plus nothing in Christ alone? And not by our works. Not by our religious deeds. Not by our prayers and mantras. Not by our, even our baptism. Not by any of these things but by grace through faith in Christ alone. Can we truly say amen to that? Don't say amen if you're trusting in your church attendance to save you. Don't say amen to that if you're falling back on some facts about Christ, but your heart doesn't trust or believe. Don't say amen to that if in every other aspect of your life you're not able to trust God. And yet you say you trust Christ with your salvation. We need to be careful when we affirm these things. Do we truly affirm that salvation is by grace through faith today? Did you know that preaching that cost men their lives in other days and other times? Just preaching the last verse of the Bible and speaking of salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone cost the saints their lives. Horrible deaths. Can we say amen to it? 
here at the end of the, Old, the New Testament. We are at the end of Revelation. We are at the end of the New Testament. The end. The very last word. Amen. The New Testament ends with an amen. <clears throat> How does the Old Testament end? Turn to Malachi chapter 4 verse 6. It behooves us to look at the contrast here for just a moment. Malachi chapter 4 verse 6. The end of the Old Testament. I'll read verse 5 to set the context. Behold, God says, this was about 440, 450 B.C., 400 B.C. The last book of the Old Testament, the last of the prophets, would be 400 years before God spoke to Israel again when He spoke to Zacharias or the angel of the Lord spoke to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. So we have the intertestamental period, 400 years. These are the last words God spoke to Israel for 400 years. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Of course, John the Baptist was a type of that Elijah. And so when he came, God spoke again. Remember the dual nature of Old Testament prophecy, a shadow fulfillment and ultimate fulfillment. We talked about that in depth in this study. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the children, or turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The Old Testament ends with a curse. The New Testament ends with an amen. In this study of Revelation that has lasted for more than 10 years, before some of you kids were even born, I don't know, is there anybody younger than 10 in here? There he is. There, of course there is. There's babies back there. What am I thinking? You kids weren't even born when we discovered. Your mom and daddy didn't even know each other. when I didn't even know your dad when this started. Old Testament ends with a curse. In this study, we have visited every single book of the Bible at least twice. Can you believe that? Every single book of the Bible we dug into in this study of Revelation at least twice. What amazing testimony to the unity and the authority of God's Word in its completeness. The Old Testament ends with a curse. Well, why does it end with a curse? It ends with a curse because Israel did not do what it said it would do and affirmed it with an amen. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. Paul tells us why the Old Testament ends with a curse. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Paul quotes here Deuteronomy 27, 26. He didn't quote the end of the verse, but the end of the verse says, And all the people said what? Amen. Okay, we affirm it. Cursed are, are those of us that don't continue in this law. That right there ought to have told Israel that without a Messiah, they were in big trouble. The Old Testament ends with a curse, thus affirming to us that we are helpless before a holy God without a Messiah. And yet, the New Testament ends with an amen. An amen to what? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of the Messiah. We are helpless without a Messiah, friends. Israel, Jew and Gentile alike. Israel and all the Gentile nations. Even Buddha knew we were helpless without a Messiah. 
Buddha taught 500 years before Christ was born that there was no way we could know the Creator because there was a great sea of suffering and the unknown that separates us from the Creator. The only way we could know the Creator is if He revealed Himself to us. He would have to send us a boat to take us to Him. Well, isn't that exactly what Jesus is? Some say He's a bridge or a mediator. But Jesus the Messiah is the boat that can take us to God. He's the one that reveals God unto us. Interesting how a pagan philosopher who never claimed to be God and yet is worshipped as God by many around the world had more sense and knowledge of the God of the Bible than a lot of people in church today. I like to use that as a bridge to the gospel in some of the Buddhist areas we've lived in overseas with my family over the years. We need a boat. We are helpless without a boat, but we are only hopeless if there is no boat. And there is a boat. Galatians 3.10, curse. As many as under the law are under the curse. But go down to verse um, 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ, Messiah. Being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. That's out of Deuteronomy 21. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The Old Testament ends with a curse. The New Testament ends with an amen to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the law is a curse to reveal to us our sins. And in Jesus Christ is the redemption from that curse. That's what this book is all about. It's about the kinsman redeemer who comes to claim what is his. And to fulfill the promises of God. Not just upon Israel but upon the nations. The Messiah of Israel was declared to be a light to the Gentiles. It's the fulfillment. To that, can we truly say, Amen, Amen, and Amen. You see, that last word of the Bible is real important because it's a capstone. It's a capstone to biblical truth that reveals a curse and also reveals the redemption of that curse. And that is Jesus Christ. His person and work. His Messiahship. He's your only hope. And I don't know why you ladies are laughing over there. I mean, I'm talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And y'all are over there sniggling and giggling. That's serious business. Be quiet. We're talking about Jesus. He's your only hope. We're talking about the Messiah. You must call upon Him. If you haven't believed, it's time to believe. If you're afraid that you might have to confess Him publicly before the saints. Remember, Jesus said, if you're ashamed to confess Me before men, I'll be ashamed to confess you before My Father. Being afraid to speak in front of people is not an excuse for God. You need to get right with God. You need to call on the Messiah. He's our only hope. Through the works of the law and through the works of the church is a curse. Only Christ can redeem us from the works of the law and then empower us with His Holy Spirit to bring glory to God through the ministry of the church. Amen. To that, I say amen. amen. To that, may we all say amen. 
May amen, the last word of the Bible, be a regular part of our vocabulary when we hear the works of God declared, whether it's on the streets, behind a pulpit, in conversation one with another. Make it a regular part of your conversation and your countenance. But don't use it flippantly. When someone says gossip is a sin and you say amen, it is a sin. But be careful if you're a gossiper. If someone says Democrats are wicked as hell and you say amen and then you go and vote for a Democrat, you better be careful. Amen is a serious word. Not to be used flippantly, but it is a visible, verbal affirmation of our hope, which is Jesus Christ. I'm going to end this study by turning back to the very first chapter of Revelation. I thought to preach a concluding message. I don't need to do that. All of the messages are up there, but let me just remind you of a couple of important points from chapter 1. Number one, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants through John. It is an unveiling, an apocalypse, a revealing of Jesus Christ. It's not revelations. It's the revelation of Christ. Verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. There's a special blessing for those who read and hear the words of this book, and yet it is so neglected by our churches. Remember that blessing. Read it. Believe it. Amen to it. Memorize it. If you go over to verse 19, write the things, John is told, which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Remember, this is the threefold outline of the book. If people would just... Go by the outline that Jesus gives John. They'd save themselves a whole lot of trouble in trying to discover what is meant in these pages. John was told to write the things he had seen, the vision of Christ in his glorified state amongst the churches as the head of the church in Revelation 1. The things which are the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The church age and the things which shall be hereafter, after the church age, Revelation 4 until the epilogue at the end of the book, at which time we don't see the church on earth anymore. So remember those things. And remember this in these dark days. Verse 7 of chapter 1, Behold, He cometh with clouds. Daniel said, He saw one like unto the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah that Daniel saw. Jesus told the priest and the scribes that in his trial. Are you the Messiah? They said. He said, you said it, but I'm going to tell you this. One day you're going to see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And they pick up stones to stone him and said, crucify him. Those religious devils are going to eat those words one day because behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him And all kindreds of the earth shall rejoice because of him. Oh no. Wail because of him. Even so. Amen.
Amen. Behold, He comes with clouds. The end. I want to thank you all for this opportunity. It's been a blessing these 10 years. and uh, um, Thank you. I'm not a leader in this church. I don't hold a position as elder or deacon. I'm just a servant. I'm not even a member of this church. I'm a member of our sending church in Granville County that first sent us to the mission field. I've never felt uh, led of the Lord to change that as a means to continue to be an encouragement to that small remnant body that has struggled. But I consider it a great honor and a privilege to have stood here. And um, I thank you for your patience over the years. I thank you for putting up with long messages, long introductions. And uh, maybe one of these days this will be in print. Lord, The Lord knows. Last thing the world needs, I think, sometimes is another book. <laughs> but all the messages are up there, and I pray that somehow you've been blessed, and like me, we've been able to wake up. And we're a little less lukewarm today than we were ten years ago. Let's pray. Father, we truly are humbled today to come to the end of this long journey. Lord, much has happened. There have been multiple presidential elections. We've seen evil enshrined into law. We've seen lots of things happen in this nation since this study began. And Lord, here we are at the end, still amidst a perverse and wicked nation. On all sides, infected on all sides of the political aisle, infected in the churches. Things have not gotten better in America since this study began. But we are now 10 years closer to the consummation written of. And Lord, we just pause here for a moment humbly. Just pause to humbly acknowledge with an amen the last word of the Bible. That Jesus Christ is our hope. The Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world is our hope. And in Him all the promises of God are yes and amen. Lord, help us to give attention to Your words. Help us to guard our speech and not to speak our own judgment. Help us to make amen a regular affirmation of our hope in these dark days. And Lord, like the, the Apostle John at the end of the book, we say, even so... Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, bless the food we're about to eat in our fellowship on this bittersweet day. And Lord, I just want to pray for the elders and the leadership of this church as they proceed forward with the preaching of the Word. Lord, as they get into the book of Hebrews, I pray you would put your Spirit upon each one of these men that's going to be teaching and preaching your words. And I pray that you continue to bless the preaching of the Word in this church, Lord that we would cling to it and not seek fulfillment or ministry apart from the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Thank you for how you've grown this body. Lord, thank you for the people that are here today that weren't here when this started. Sadly, Lord, there are some that aren't here today who were here when it started. But Lord, we're grateful for what we have here. We're grateful for these believers and these families and for these children, Lord. And we ask that you would save every one of these children, that you would give them an understanding in who Jesus is, that you would take away their fears to confess Him openly. And Lord, that you would save them before it's too late.
that we could rest and wait for your coming and occupy with confidence until you do come. So Lord, I just commend this study and this preaching and these 10 years that you've walked with this church body all along the way through many trials and tribulations. Lord, when people call the body of Christ a cult like they did back in the first century of those earlier Christians, that is a badge of honor, Lord. That's a badge of honor and we embrace it. And Lord, I just thank you for these 10 years of this study in this book. And I don't know if it makes much of a difference, Lord, beyond the walls of this church, and that's fine. But continue to use the preaching of your word and wake people up. Wake the church up, Lord, to look for your coming and to stop seeking solace in these days, Lord, to stop being at ease in days of unrighteousness. Lord, we commend it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.